Uh, we're reading in John chapter 5, um, and as you uh, are still not yet familiar, uh, we've added uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, a response to God's Word. Uh, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray now. Uh, then I will ask you, if you're able, to please stand as we read God's Word together, and then you'll notice that there is a response to the Word before uh, the sermon. So would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as we come to this Your Word, You have uh, inspired the very words themselves. John wrote with his personality, with his knowledge, with his memory, with his understanding, but he also wrote under your control and inspiration. We have them 2,000 years later almost because you've kept them and preserved them for us. We can trust them because they're yours. Would you now open our ears to hear them? Would you untangle our minds to understand them? And would you soften our hearts to embrace them? Through Christ, we pray. Amen. If you're able, would you please stand as we read God's word together. John chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 30. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. <coughs> truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a, a common misconception out there in the world. And in history, quite honestly, uh, that the idea of 
the deity of Christ, that, that Jesus as God is imposed on the Bible by the church in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. There's this notion out there that, that, that actually, quite honestly, Jesus never even claimed himself to be God. In fact, there's a, a critical scholar at, at UNC, Chapel Hill, uh, Bart Ehrman, that, that holds that view even now. Who contends that, that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. That, that somehow that's a, a later imposition on the Bible. But you can't read this passage and come to that conclusion. The, those two things can't stand together because it's clear that the Jews have changed their charge from Sabbath breaking to blasphemy. They decided, well, Sabbath breaking, that's bad. We're going to get you on that. But now that you have claimed God as your father and therefore claim to be his equal... We get, to, we get to boost the charge. We get to change it to something bigger, something greater. And so Jesus, in his, in his response in the previous passage, acknowledges that he is the son of the father. And so their reaction, the reaction of the Jews, was to seek to kill Jesus. Truth is, that's the reaction of many in the world around us today. There are plenty who, who come face to face with Jesus in some form or other, perhaps a, a misconception, perhaps a, a partial perception of who he is, um, a, a reinterpretation of what they read or what they understand. And they say, well, no, I'm going to change this a little bit. I'm not buying this, but I'll take some of that. And then the Jesus they end up with is one they want to reject. They want to, to kill. They want to throw away. He doesn't fit the, the model, the picture of, of what's acceptable in our world today. He frequently doesn't fit the model or, or, or picture of what's acceptable even in our own minds. Jesus can't be God. Jesus isn't God, wasn't God, but he's just a great moral teacher. He's just a, a fine historical figure that we should learn some things from, but we'll just boil down his who he is and what he means and what he taught to just love people. And that's really the, the core, the crux of what he taught Jesus is really just a, another human that God adopted as a God, little g. But he's really not eternally God. He's not the eternal, unique son of the Father. But the reality is, if Jesus isn't God, we have no hope. If Jesus isn't God, we should go home. There's no reason for us to be here if we reject that claim. The, a claim that Jesus very clearly makes right here in this passage. First, I want you to see, you'll notice our sermon title, Like Father, Like Son. The Son is like the Father in purpose. Did you notice verse 19? Jesus says the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. That sounds 
That sounds like a limitation. Doesn't it? That sounds like a restriction. That somehow Jesus is almost complaining. Well, honestly, I really kind of want to do these things. But I can't. Father won't let me. Right? What teenage boy has never had that thought go through their mind? Right? I sure would love to, but my dad... It almost sounds like that's kind of what Jesus is saying. That he's, that he's complaining that he's trapped. That, he, that the Father has put these constraints on him. But that's not the case at all. In fact, there are actually the reason we use the Nicene Creed for our affirmation of faith this morning is because that was the issue when the Council of Nicaea was called in 325 A.D. And that's the very issue that that creed responds to. The teaching that Jesus was just a created man, but kind of a special man and adopted by God to be sort of the primary son. But he really isn't eternally the son of the father. But Jesus is using here not the language of of constraint, of limitation, of complaint and frustration. He's actually using the language of apprenticeship. Maybe this is not so common. Maybe as the years go on, this this becomes less and less common. But it's really not that far-fetched for us to think about the fact that kids were just kind of expected to grow up and grow into the family business. If you're a blacksmith, your dad was probably a blacksmith. Your kids are going to be blacksmiths. If you're a farmer, then your dad was probably a farmer. Your kids are going to grow up to be farmers. If you were a carpenter, if your dad was a carpenter, you likely grew up to be a carpenter. And that's the, that's the language. That's the, the idea of what behind what Jesus is saying here in verses 19 and 20. He's learned carpentry from Joseph when he was a boy he learned the difference between a hammer and a saw probably before even his father would let him use the saw because that's a little more dangerous than the hammer and so Jesus from a young age as it were sort of learned apprenticed at uh, Joseph's wood shop it's that kind of language. It's that kind of idea that he's, that he's using here. Jesus is doing exactly what the Father does because, if you'll humor me, he's apprenticed at his Father's side since before the foundation of the world. He and the Father have, have existed forever and, and they share the same purpose. This isn't a restriction of Dad won't let me. It's really more reflective of the fact that we have the same goal. We have the same purpose. I can only do what he can do and because we're one, because we're together in this. We're on the same mission and purpose. And, and in fact, you notice in verse 20, it's the grounds for this is the father's love for the son. The reason the son does what the father does is because the father loves the son And since he loves the son, he's shown him everything. He's taught him everything. 
if you want to keep the apprentice thing going a little longer, are you going to let your competitor into your office, show him the files, show him the plans, show him the work, show him the details, show him the secret, show him the trademarks. No. You don't, you don't give that, that stuff away to a competitor. You hold on to it. At least even Michigan football recognizes that you got to at least look like a friend if you're going to get the secrets, if you're going to get the plans. That's part of the point here. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the father's voice came, this is my beloved son. At the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not happened yet, but at the Mount of Transfiguration, again, the father's voice, this is my beloved son. And so the father invites the son, as it were, into this common purpose, into this common mission. They're both at work and their work is the same. Their work is not at odds with each other. They're not in competition. They're not battling one another. They share the same purpose. The son is like the father in purpose. And in fact, we, we saw that even back at the beginning of John, right? Surely you rem- if you don't remember, you know the first 18 verses of John. Everyone's familiar with the fact that John 1 tells the story of the son as the agent of creation that by him all things were made and without him nothing was made that was made and we see it even in the works of providence and of redemption we have this notion we don't we've talked about it enough here at grace covenant so perhaps we don't but some people do there are people out there who actually argue that the son did what he did to sort of strong arm the father into loving you even though john 3:16 is the best known verse in all of scripture for god so loved the world that he sent his son not the son came so that the father would love the world That's what's going on here. The son is reminding those around him. He's reminding us that he and the father share the same purpose. When the son exercised his authority, even over the Sabbath day in the previous passage, it's precisely because the father has been at work also. Yes, the Sabbath was instituted in Genesis 2 because the father ceased from his work of creation. But he didn't stop doing everything. If he stops doing everything, worlds spin all kind of out of control. He's the one that holds them in their orbit. Jesus has authority on the Sabbath and works on the Sabbath precisely because the father has maintained his works of necessity and mercy on the Sabbath. The son is like the father in purpose. The son is also like the father in authority. 
Again, this, this, is, this grows out of, I mentioned last time, not last week, two weeks ago uh, in the previous passage that, that the events of that passage really are the foundation for the next several chapters in John. And there's this constant pursuit, uh, the Jews seeking to kill Jesus, to arrest him, to destroy him, to defeat him. Um, and that's this this lengthy teaching from Jesus grows out of that passage. They charged him um, with Sabbath breaking. They changed that charge to blasphemy. They ignored the fact that a paralyzed man, an invalid, was walking around carrying his mat. Okay, they didn't ignore that part. They paid very close attention to the mat carrying part because that too, in their minds, is a violation of Sabbath law. He's breaking the fourth commandment. Now I get it. Um, we can do kidney transplants. We can do heart tra- I remember. I remember watching the news. Some dude got a transplant heart, and you're like, that just seems. Like, how's that a thing? We've got radiation and chemo to do battle with cancer. We can can do a lot of cool things. But a heart that quit working on Thursday, there's nothing we can do. We don't have that medical advancement Yet, In fact, even the ancient rabbis recognize that there are three keys, that God has three keys that we will never own, that we cannot have. The key to reign. Because if we'd had it, we wouldn't have waited until this past Friday to get that little bit. The womb and the tomb. God has those keys and there's nothing we can do with those. And Jesus claims in these verses to have the exact same authority that the Father has. Because you notice in verse 21, a heart that stopped on Thursday is no problem for the Father. It's no problem for the Son. We can get the paddles. We can do the clear. We can do the kachuga thing, the shock thing. Nothing's going to happen. But put Lazarus in a tomb for four days and all Jesus has to do is say the word. And that's connected to the healing of the previous passage. If Jesus can heal a paralyzed man, a dead person raising the dead is really sort of the next step. And of course, if the father has authority even over death itself, that he can raise the dead and give them life, so too the son can raise the dead and give them life. Life. The Father holds the key to the tomb, and Jesus says, I've got the other key. I've got that same authority. Now, maybe some of you remember our Sunday school class, because actually Ernie did a really good job with this. It was just a few weeks ago, at least I think it was Ernie, just a few weeks ago that he made this observation. Peter raised somebody from the dead. 
See, maybe you're an astute student and you're going, hold on a second. Jesus raised it. I'm pretty sure Peter did that. Actually, Elijah did it too. But pay attention. They prayed. Jesus commanded. They prayed and asked God to do something. Jesus just says, come out of the tomb, Lazarus. Live. Walk. Be alive. Jesus exercises. He has that that power and authority even over death itself. But notice verse 24. The death and resurrection language changes just a little bit in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And this carries on into a little bit into the next couple of verses. That's not first death language. That's second death language. Language. You, you, you are aware that there are two deaths out there. You are aware that there are two deaths that you and I need to be aware of. Notice I don't say afraid of. There's only one of those. You see, the first death is the body back to the dust. Spirit goes where it goes. And, and so be it, right? That comes to all men. And, and even Lazarus. Jesus is going to call him out, but sooner or later, Lazarus is going to end up back in that tomb again. Right? The first death is what it is. It comes to all of us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, from whence you came. It's the second death that matters. It's the one after the judgment. It's the one when Christ says, here, you sheep, come with me. You goats, you're going over there. I was under my house yesterday afternoon. I could hear a leak. I could hear a drip. It's been driving me nuts. Finally had the time yesterday to crawl under there and do something about it. I know the Bible says that hell is going to be hot. But I'm pretty sure if the New Testament writers had crawled around under a house, that would have been included My knees still hurt. And I really wasn't under there that long. There's a a judgment. There's a, a second death that comes when Christ returns. And it's the second death that matters to us. The one we need to be concerned with. And it's those who trust in Christ who are delivered from that one. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you will die. Unless he returns first. Pretty sure. Pretty sure we're going to die. But that's just me. But if you trust in him, that's the only one you got. Right? That's the only death that matters to you. That, that you will have to face. The second one won't be a thing for you. And that's the promise. Not only can Christ redeem can can draw out from the first death not only will he raise those who deal with the first death which will be everyone but he also can deliver you from the second one that's your hope believer 
He exercises authority both over the first and he's judge and jury in the second. In fact, the father has has given him judgment verses 22 and then again in 25 to 30 where those those verses in 25 to 30 sort of expound that line of thinking in verse 22 that in the last day Jesus will serve as the judge and those who do good who trust in him will pass to eternal life to the resurrection of life which skips the second death altogether there's this picture, verse 28, of, of, of Jesus sitting there on the throne. And as he calls, and verse and 28 and 29, and as he calls men out of the tomb, the resurrection comes to everyone, right? Everyone will be raised when Christ returns. The question isn't, will we face have a resurrection? The question is, where are we going to go after that? And, and you get this image of Jesus sorting people, not, not with a hat. Not into four houses, but into two, right? Into sheep and goats. Those are your only two options. The eternal, holy, just, wise, gracious Son of Man sits on the throne and sends some to their destiny with Christ, eternal life, and some to eternal torment in hell. But did you notice, did you notice the phrase in verse 27? I think the name that Jesus uses for himself in verse 27, which by the way, is the name he uses for himself more often than anything else in the gospels. Son of man, to me, if if it's just me, if I'm reading, that sounds weaker than son of God, doesn't it? I mean, when you tell me, I'm not the only one, tell me that when your mind sees Son of God, you think, okay, there's some power there. Son of man, eh. Right? Okay, oh, that's just his humanity. But it's his divinity that I need, right? By the way, go read the Council, the council of Chalcedon this afternoon. Your Sunday afternoon reading is the Chalcedonian Creed. We didn't use that. Trust me, you're, you're okay for it. Where does that term come from? It comes from Daniel 7. And Jesus uses it to claim authority. The vision in Daniel 7 is of a ruler who has the right to open books, to open scrolls, to exercise judgment. And Jesus says, I am the son of man of Daniel 7. Jesus is the one that Daniel sees in that vision. Now you talk about something that's completely unacceptable in our world today, and it's the idea of a judgment. You ever noticed, I I should walk around the parking lot before I use illustrations like this. I really hope. You ever notice you're riding around town and you see stickers on the back of cars? Honoring a loved one, a family member, got a date of birth, date of death, some sort of, you know, missed love. I I get it, right? There are always angel wings and halos. They're never pitchforks. 
or pointy tails. Right? The assumption is that whoever, whatever, for whatever reason, ends up in whatever heaven is, whatever I think it might be, it doesn't really matter because we're all going to get there. Whatever there is. If there even is a thing. Right? We, we have this notion that judgment is bad, that judgment is evil, that judgment is wicked, and, and we won't sort of, worst case scenario, we all get whatever heaven is. That's the, the world we live in. But go around Athens, or maybe it's not as big a deal in Athens as it is in Atlanta or Nashville or New York. But go around and start talking about judgment at the return of Christ, and you will find people who will push back against that notion. People are offended and even angered by that very idea. But Jesus says, I will come back. I will raise the dead, all the dead, and I will pass judgment, separating into the sheep and the goats. The son is like the father in purpose. The son is like the father in authority. The son, finally and briefly, is like the father in honor. My guess is, and I think this is part of what's going on for the Jews, right? My guess is when you think of God, you kind of think of the Father. And, and we, I mean, even kids kind of learn, you know, we have to teach them. Well, but Jesus is God, right? He's also God. I mean, not also God, but also God. But not exactly also God. And we try to figure out how to say that to a kid, right? And, and they will then go talk about the Father. They'll talk about God. And then they'll kind of say, well, Jesus, well, he's God. But but we think our natural thought process is to think God equals Father. And I think that's part of what's going on here because certainly everyone in, around Jesus at this point knew Deuteronomy 6, right? The hero Israel, the Lord is one? Well, well if, the, if the Lord is one, then how can he be God and you be standing here in our midst? So we, we can at least, we read the Gospels far more arrogantly then we would have lived the Gospels, mind you. And, and, and Jesus has claimed he is one with the Father. Of course, Jesus is standing there in the flesh. And that throws all kinds of... And you start getting into Trinity conversations and my brain hurts before just saying the word... But Jesus standing there in the flesh among these people is the word of God incarnate. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. This is the son in flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the eternal, hail the incarnate deity. You have to sing it right to get there. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus has the power. He has the authority. He comes to judge so that, verse 23, he might receive honor. The Father is honored already. He grants the authority to judge so that Christ might share in that honor and in that glory. He shares the same honor and glory with the Father which raises a question. 
to ask it a bit provocatively, but it's the way the psalmist writes it in Psalm 2. Have you kissed the son? Have you given him that honor? Have you bowed your knee in humble submission to him? Have you already confessed Jesus Christ is Lord? Or are you still claiming to honor God while holding the Son at arm's length? But there's a question here. How will the Son exercise this power and authority? Notice verse 24. In verse 24, whoever hears my word. Verse 25. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Verse 28. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Jesus saves by his word. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb by his voice. And it is by his word, it is by his voice that you and I are delivered from sin to eternal life and thereby escape the second death. Jesus has the power to raise the dead both physically and spiritually by the power of his word. Have you heard the call of Christ to repent of your sin? Have you trusted in him as your redeemer? Believed in him who sent Christ? If not, then do that today. But you know what gives him the authority? You know what gives him the right? It's the greater things from verse, the greater works from verse 20. When Jesus himself comes out of the tomb, never to go back. Lazarus comes out, he one day goes back. Jesus comes out, he never goes back. He has power over death itself. It's his greater resurrection. It's his greater work to, to defeat everything that sin has to throw at us. To instead of going back to the tomb, he goes back to the Father's side. Having completed his mission, having accomplished our redemption. Which means that you and I can trust in him. We can trust in Christ precisely because he's God in the flesh. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, uh, for the promise of forgiveness in Christ. Uh, for the assurance that uh, Christ has accomplished our deliverance, uh, that our salvation is not dependent on our work, we pray that you would give us the grace uh, to bear up even under the, the, the face, the reality of the first death, knowing full well that your children never face the second. Would you grant us the grace? Would you... Grant us the endurance to run this race in this life with an eye on the world to come. To the honor and glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.